So, um, have you ever wondered uh, or, or, or noticed, I'm sure you've noticed this just about every year like I have, how the, ad, how the advertising industry works over Christmas and New Year? Have, have, you, have you kind of noticed that? So, you know, call me a cynic, uh, some people do, um, but have, have, you, have you noticed how in the lead up to Christmas, right, the adverts tempt us to do one thing and then after Christmas they tempt us to do something else? Have you, have, you kind of, have you picked up on that? So, for example, um, before Christmas, we're encouraged to indulge ourselves. Aren't we, you know, give yourselves a little Christmas treat, that kind of thing. Eat those little luxuries that will make your Christmas complete, that kind of thing. And then in the new year, you know, when we stop indulging ourselves and we'll, we kind of take a break and step on the scales and, and make our New Year's resolutions, well, the, ad, the adverts are out again, aren't they, to, to sell us Weight Watchers courses or step counters or Peloton machines, or something like that. Or, or have you noticed how before Christmas we're being tempted to buy that expensive gift? You know, maybe a bit of interest-free credit is available or something like that. In other words, spend more to, to treat yourself and so on. And then in the new year when we've opened the credit card bill and uh, we're being sold like a cheap loan or like another credit card or, or, or something like that. And, and of course the advertising industry seeks to sell us all this stuff because it knows what will interest us at this particular time of the year. Doesn't it? Might not surprise you to know that amongst the most popular New Year's resolutions are to get more exercise, to lose weight, to spend less, to save more. It's not rocket science, is it? And, and I don't suppose that any of us would argue that those are good things, they're worth pursuing. I could do with pursuing one or two of them. Um, but, um, but if those are the indicators of the things that occupy the thoughts and the priorities of most people, if it's those areas of our life that we feel, as, as people, most of all in need of improving in the, in the new year. We might need to do some rethinking. Um, I mean, you know, for the, for the purely sort of secular person to have those priorities, that might be understandable, isn't it? If, if, if all you think is, is that this world, this life, you know, this body and so on is, is all there is, I suppose we could understand it. But for God's people... To think that what we're most in need of in this new year is just a bit more exercise. That might need a bit of a rethink. Where are the goals for this year relating to our spiritual lives? If, if our diet is so important to keep us uh, physically healthy, then are we going to starve ourselves for the lack of healthy soul food, spiritual food? Um, there was an article in the Times, uh, I think it was a week before... Christmas that said it said this um, it's a curious irony that our age of rigorous self-optimization has so little to say about the inner life your abs must be toned in the gym your bowels cleansed with smoothies of exotic concoction your body relaxed on expensive holidays but your spirit towards these matters the tone of our present culture is increasingly one of hostility or suspicion. And it made the point that inner turbulence, okay, so it, by which it meant the, the kind of expanding category of mental health issues, inner turbulence is to be smoothed away with meditations or therapy or the digital sedatives of Netflix or TikTok. I thought it was quite a striking piece of cultural observation actually. And it made me think that if that is the cultural pond, as it were, that the world around us is swimming in, you know, one that prioritises the body whilst neglecting the soul, 
Well, then what about us as God's people? If, if the advertising industry were to target our priorities and aspirations and goals and attitudes, then what would it be trying to sell us? And where would the pursuit of God feature in all of that? Maybe to put it simply, what do our attitudes, our resolutions, our priorities, our goals in life say about our spiritual health? Well, as we look at this passage this morning, I'd like us to focus differently, uh, um, uh, specifically on the, on the different characters in the story and, and to reflect on their attitudes and priorities. And, and I think that might help us as we face this new year to be prioritising our spiritual health, not simply our physical health. Um, let's allow God, through the, the characters in this passage, to challenge us about our attitudes and priorities in this, in this year ahead. So let's meet the characters. Here they are. Firstly, look, you've got Mary and Joseph in verses 21 to 24. Um, and then you've got Simeon in verses 25 to 35. He's the main character in the passage, uh, aside from God, of course. Uh, he's the main character in the passage, so we're going to spend most time looking at him and his song, because if you remember, we're, we're at the third and final song in our, our Christmas playlist here in Luke. Um, and then thirdly, and briefly, we're going to look at Anna in verses 36 to 38. So let's start with Mary and Joseph. And the first thing I'd love us to notice about them here is that they are obedient and God-honouring people. So if you have a look at verse 21, um, it's now... Uh, eight days after the birth of Jesus, it's the time when under the Old Testament law, um, the baby, uh, Jesus, is to be brought to the temple for circumcision. So that's what they do in obedience to God's law. Okay, but notice that the, the emphasis in the verse is not on his circumcision, it's on his naming. And, and here too, you see Mary and Joseph's obedience, don't you? He was named Jesus in accordance with the angel's instructions, with God's word to him through the angels. So just as we saw the other week, uh, if you were here, that Elizabeth and Zechariah were faithful in the naming of their son as John, just as the angels had, had instructed. So Joseph and Mary are doing the same thing. They're faithful to what God has said uh, as well. They obey the word of God through the angel. And then look in verse uh, 22 to 24. The couple take this journey uh, uh, to Jerusalem uh, in order to uh, complete two other ceremonies as well, again, in accordance with the requirements of the law. Um, so uh, firstly, it's for Mary to complete the ceremony of purification. So a wife was considered ceremonially ceremonially impure for, for a period of 40 days after the birth of a son. Verse 22 tells us that period of her impurity was now complete. So they come to Jerusalem, to the temple. They offer the sacrifice of two doves or two pigeons, which is the poor person's sacrifice, in accordance with the law. It's in Leviticus 12. But then notice, secondly, they're going to Jerusalem so that the infant Jesus can be presented to the Lord. So, so he is, of course, the firstborn. Uh, and so in accordance with the law, he is consecrated. He's set apart to, to the Lord. So Luke spends a bit of time here, doesn't he, in, in these verses, painting a picture of Mary and Joseph's obedience. Firstly, to God's word to them through the angel, but then also and particularly their obedience to the Old Testament law. So why bother doing that? You know, we know, don't we, that Luke is uh, written he's writing this gospel to a man called Theophilus who's probably a young Christian and a Gentile 
and a non-Jew. So why would you include so much detail about Mary and Joseph's obedience to the law of Moses? What relevance would that have to to a Gentile Christian, you know, like us, in fact, in in our day and age as well, who's not required to keep those those ceremonial laws? You know, those are things that are gone, aren't they, under the new covenant? So so what what use are they, either to Theophilus or indeed to us? Why, Why do we need to know this stuff? Why does he bother telling us? I think one reason is that Luke wants us to see that Jesus was brought up in a devout, God-fearing household. Yes, they were poor, but they were a godly, obedient family. You know, where Jesus was brought up in accordance with, with the Old Testament law. Jesus wasn't brought up in some kind of secular environment which was sort of rebellious to the law. He was brought up in obedience to the law by parents who devoutly kept the law of Moses. And and I think that helps us to see a little of what our reaction to the Old Testament law should be, doesn't it? Because I think sometimes we get confused about that, don't we? See, Jesus' teaching, when he grows up and conducts his ministry, Jesus' teaching is not in opposition to the law. Jesus' teaching doesn't reject the law. Jesus' teaching fulfills the law. It completes the law. And and so our approach as as Christians to the books of the law should likewise be not dismissive of them, you know, seeing them as kind of irrelevant to, to New Testament Christians, but actually still instructive for us as we look at them through, if you like, New Testament glasses. And I think that helps us to see another reason why Luke takes some time here to, to mention it, because although neither Theophilus, who is, is, this is, the, is the first recipient of this, nor ourselves uh, need to be keeping the laws of the Old Testament temple worship, uh, like, like Mary and Joseph are doing here, Luke does, it seems, intend for us to see the attitudes of godly, faithful people towards their, their approach to God. We see that here, don't we? We see how seriously... The requirements of the law take the approaching of God as we come to speak to him, as we come to hear from him. So so whilst we can rejoice that in Christ the need for endless sacrifices is over, you know, they're fulfilled in the one perfect sacrifice of Jesus. Um, Although we can rejoice that God doesn't dwell in buildings anymore, but he dwells in our hearts by faith. Although we can see in the teachings of Jesus his rejection of people's dead religious rites and ceremonies. Nevertheless, I don't think we should lose what passages like this can still teach us, still tell us, about the attitude with which godly people will approach a God of majesty and glory. Now, of course, our approach to God through Jesus is one of intimacy isn't it it's the intimacy of a child to his father but nevertheless that that intimacy shouldn't be an excuse for flippancy as we come to him should we there's still a lesson i think to be learned for us from the example of mary and joseph here so as we examine their character i think we see that mary and joseph are a a young couple displaying the characteristics of faithfulness to what God has said and devout obedience to his law. And I think there's instruction for us there as well.
But look, the character I'd love us to focus most of all on this morning is that of Simeon, look, in, in verses 25 to 35. What sort of a person is he? I reckon he's an older person. Now, we're not explicitly told this, um, so you might wonder why I think he's an older person. Uh, apparently, I'm told there are several tests that you can apply to know if someone is old. Um, maybe you'd like to see if some of these tests apply to you. Um, <laughs> You know that you are old when you look for your glasses for half an hour and then you find them on top of your head, yeah? (laughs) Guilty as charged on that one, definitely. Um, Or you know you're old when you get two invitations to go out on the same night and you pick the one that gets you home the earliest. (laughs) Okay, fess up. Um, You know you're old when you sit in the rocking chair, but you can't get it started. (laughs) Might be that. You know you're old when the idea of a night out is on the patio, okay? Well, how about this one? You really know you're old when all the National Trust sites you visit are younger than you are, okay? Now, I haven't applied those tests to Simeon here, but I I think you can see, I think you can infer it from the text, can't you? In as much as, look at verse 26, the Holy Spirit has revealed to him that he will not see death until he sees the Lord's Christ, And then having seen the Messiah, he's now ready to die, as verse 29 um, explains. So I reckon he's an older man. But Luke is not so much concerned with his age here, but rather with his spiritual state. Did you pick up on that? Verse 25 describes him as righteous and devout. So he is a God-honoring man. He's a man approved by God, who, just like Mary and Joseph, is obedient to the law and faithful to what God says. And in addition to that, uh, verse 25, we see that he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. In other words, he knows his scriptures, right, and and the promise of a Messiah that will come and, and deliver the nation and bring consolation or comfort to the people. And he's waiting for that to happen. So he's a godly man, but here too is a man in whom God's spirit is at work. Did you pick that up? Um, how is the spirit at work in Simeon? First of all, look look at verse 26. The Holy Spirit is at work in Simeon in promise. Do you see? God has promised this devout old man that he will not die until he's personally seen God's Messiah. That's amazing, isn't it? But also, look, the Spirit is at work in Simeon in prompting. So Simeon here is prompted, moved by the Holy Spirit to go to the temple courts at exactly the same time as Mary and Joseph are bringing the baby Jesus in. And he stops them. And he takes the baby in his arms, verse 28. And Luke wants us to know about the Spirit's anointing on, on Simeon there so that we will treat with particular seriousness the content of what Simeon has to say about this baby. In other words, it's like, sit up and listen. This is important. Because not only is the spirit active in in promise, in in prompting, but he's active in praise and prophecy as well. Simeon here testifies to Jesus, doesn't he? And this this song in, in these next few verses is really the heart of the passage, isn't it? And it's once again, it's a burst of praise from a joyful heart because God has fulfilled his promise to him by letting him see the Messiah before he dies. It's interesting to think, isn't it, how many people must have met and talked 
and listened to Jesus during the course of his adult life and ministry and never known him for who he was. And yet here's one man in whom God's spirit is working who is enabled only through the spirit's power to look at a one-month-old baby and see him for who he really is. That's something, isn't it? And and I think the lesson there is obvious, isn't it? How much we need the Spirit's enabling. How much we need to pray for the Spirit's enabling in in our own lives and, and the lives of others because it's only when God's Holy Spirit opens up dull minds and and stubborn hearts that we're able to see Jesus for who he really is. And that's what's happening here, isn't it? Simeon here sees Jesus for who he really is. And he just praises God. Verse 29. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. In other words, Lord, you can, you can do with me what you like now. I'm, I'm ready to die in peace. You can, you can send me off on my way because I've seen your promise fulfilled. Do you see? He's just praising God because, verse 30, my eyes have seen your salvation. Right? He's seen Jesus. And in seeing Jesus, he's seen God's salvation. Right? He doesn't need to stick around and see that salvation accomplished on the cross. Right? He's, he's seen that the Messiah has come into the world. And, and so he's happy to assume that the, the rest of the plan will happen. <laughs> he's at peace. He's ready to die now at any time. And friends, how important it is for us, like Simeon, to know God's salvation before we die. See, friends, um, for some of us this morning, not to put too fine a point on it, we are in the closing years of our lives. And we won't have many more years before we face death. But actually for the rest of us as well, who might think we've got oh, plenty of time to go, well, we might be surprised at how quickly that comes around. We don't know what the future holds, do we? How quickly our lives can be taken from us. So can I ask you, how do you view your death? Have you met with Jesus? Are you able to say with Simeon, I can die in peace at any time now, Lord. You know, whenever you require my life from me, I can depart in peace. Because my eyes have seen your salvation. Can you say that? Because what, friends, what confidence we can have in our later years as we anticipate eternity with our Saviour. But frankly, what dread should fill us if we don't know him? Do you have that assurance? Simeon's assurance? Friends, how important it is for us to know God's salvation before we die. But look, we can see a few more things about this salvation. Uh, Verse 31, it's salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. Okay, so Luke, the the Gentile, you know, uh, the non-Jew, who's writing this to Theophilus, another non-Jew, is keen to point out, and, and, and to him and to us as Gentiles ourselves, that salvation through Jesus is for people from all nations. Right? The events of this salvation plan are there for all to see. And, and, and notice verse 32, it's a universal offer. 
So yes, it will bring glory to Israel. That's verse 32. It's a gospel that that God has brought to the world through them. But it's intended as a universal offer for all peoples. You you, you might know that um, uh, earlier in the chapter, Luke records, doesn't he? The angels announcing the birth of Jesus to kind of common shepherds, nobodies, you know, out in the fields with their with their sheep. And and he does that in in part to show that salvation is for ordinary people. In other words, it's regardless of your your social rank or class or whatever. And and here he's recording Simeon's words to show us that salvation is for people from every nation. doesn't matter where you're from. It's It's for Gentiles just as much as it is for Jews. It's a universal offer. And I wonder if you see a little hint of irony there that God should use Simeon. Right, a Jewish priest in the Jerusalem temple to teach us that salvation is for Gentiles as well. Well, the, the parents, they, they, they marvel at Simeon's words of praise about the Messiah and glorious truths they are. But you notice that although his song is finished, Simeon isn't finished, is he? Because look at verses 34, 35. He gives us a kind of, um, it's a darker, a stranger sort of prophecy concerning this uh, Messiah, doesn't he? In verse uh, 34. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Those are quite sort of odd verses, Aren't they? The, the imagery of them, I think, it seems to be mostly drawn from the prophet Isaiah. You might remember Isaiah 8, uh, uh, verse 14. The prophet uh, speaks about a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling. Or I think the NIV puts it, uh, a stone that will cause men to stumble, a rock that makes them fall. Right? And, and it's an idea that's sort of picked up again by Paul in Romans 9, also by Peter in, in uh, 1 Peter 2. He actually cites the verse in, in Isaiah 8. Um, but it, it seems to be the same idea that Simeon is picking up on here, the idea that the offer of salvation, yes, it might be a universal offer, but it won't be taken up by everyone. Jesus is not only God's salvation, but he's also the cause of people stumbling or falling because they won't believe in him. And, and the point there is... It's a bit of a stark one, really, isn't it? The point is that you can't be neutral about Jesus. Salvation is offered to all, but it must be considered individually, and it will be rejected by many. In other words, it's it's kind of it's not like the gearbox in your in your car that you can kind of keep in neutral. while you decide whether you're going forwards or backwards. No, salvation, verse 35, it reveals the hearts of people. We can't be neutral about Jesus. And, and Luke's very careful to make that point. And of course, it's, it's a point, isn't it, that's very relevant to each of us as well. It's one that demands our response. And, and the ministry and teaching of Jesus will produce that opposition within people's hearts. And Simon here is, uh, Simeon here is prophesying that, that this will happen, that people will reject Jesus and that this will cause pain, and pain to his mother as well, like a sword piercing her very soul, verse uh, 35. That's the first indication we get in Luke, actually, of the pain that Jesus will have to suffer as he brings us salvation and the pain that will cause his mother as well. So, friends, the, the, the gospel implications here are quite clear aren't they 
The universal offer of salvation demands a response. So the question becomes, are we clear about our response to him? But our aim was to look at the characters in the story, wasn't it? What do we learn here about Simeon and his priorities and his attitudes? Well, Simeon, again, Simeon's a godly man, isn't he? And he's a man content with his life and a man ready to face death when God calls him because he's seen God's salvation. Whatever his future holds, he's at peace because he's seen God's salvation. I think it's a similar attitude um, that we see in the Apostle Paul uh, in Philippians 3, isn't it? When, it? when he says, I count everything as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Do, do you see the attitude? It doesn't matter now. I know Jesus. And, and he actually, Paul actually goes further than that, doesn't he? For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. In other words, I've, I've got Christ. It's, it's knowing him and serving him that, that, that matters. Everything else is just chaff. It's just rubbish. It's junk in comparison. Do you see, friends, it's knowing Christ. It's serving Christ that defines his life. So it's okay. That's a challenge, isn't it? Is this what defines our lives? You know, when we consider what we'll do, with our lives, our work or our leisure or our retirement or how we'll use our time or our resources or how we'll behave or the relationships that we'll form or the the conversations that we'll have or the language we'll use or the attitude that will characterise us and so on, will our uh, priorities and behaviours reflect the contentment that should come with knowing God's salvation? Because you see, contentment has come for Simeon here, hasn't it? He doesn't care now when he dies. He's a man at peace. He's content. But his contentment hasn't come from fulfilling his retirement plan. (laughs) Hasn't come from losing a few pounds or or getting a bit more exercise or a bit more me time or, or whatever. It's come from knowing God. And friends, as we face this new year, let's be reminded that this is where true contentment lies. Right? In other words, let's not fall into the trap of thinking that contentment can come from external things, you know, from, from our circumstances. But rather, let's be reminded here that it's as we grow in knowing God and his salvation that we'll know true and lasting contentment. So if you're a New Year's resolution kind of person... Well, by all means, resolve to get a bit more exercise. Maybe I'll see you at the gym. (laughs) But friends, let's not prioritise our bodies over our souls. Let's take seriously the fact that true contentment is found in Christ and in his salvation. And so pursue him and growth in him this new year. Let me say a few quick words as we close about uh, the final character, look, Anna, in verses 36 to 38. And and I wanted to mention her because because verse 37 suggests that she is at least uh, 84 years old. And and that, according to verse 36, means that you are advanced in years. Can I say that? Which, if I was going to be cheeky, which I am inclined to be, 
um, suggests that there are one or two here this morning for whom it could also be said that you too are advanced in years. Just be very glad that we're not using the NIV translation because that uses the phrase very old. <laughs> okay, so, uh, so, <laughs> so what is Anna like, this lady advanced in years, shall we say? Well, notice verse 36, she's a prophetess. So someone that God has, has been using to give revelation from him. She was a devout and an active believer who did not depart from the temple, verse 37, but worshipped with fasting and prayer night and day. In other words, here is a woman, at least in her 80s, who is totally focused on serving God. And, and she comes to, to bear witness to Jesus, verse 38, and on seeing him, she gives thanks to God and speaks to others about him, verse 38. But what's interesting here is that Luke spends more time in telling us about her and her godliness than he does about what she said. Do you notice that? He presents her to us as a lady who has given years and years of tireless service. And it appears that since her husband had died, um, she'd been uh, entirely dedicated to ministry in the temple. So that even at the age of at least 84, she is to be found night and day in prayer. What a glorious example she is of the fact that it's never too late for God to use us. You know, even in the closing years of our lives, if we are willing, God will use us in his service. That's really helpful, isn't it? Friends, ministry is not just for young people. But rather, as Simeon and Anna have shown us, (laughs) it's for old people and very old people. (laughs) And if we're prayerful and willing, even when our bodies make us less active or less mobile, God doesn't close down ministries. He gives us new ones, fresh areas of service. And here's a lady given over pretty much full time to a ministry of of intercessory prayer. There's a bit of application there, isn't there? From the character of Anna for older brothers and sisters among us. And friends, it's, it, the application, I think, is this. For the Christian, the Isle of Wight is not a retirement community. Right? It's a gospel mission field. And, and retirement from paid employment could perhaps just be the Lord freeing you up for what may prove to be the most significant, valuable ministry opportunities of your life. Opportunities you might never have had while you were working full-time or while you were raising a family or, or whatever. At the very least, Simeon and, and Anna here remind us that age is no barrier to service. So, friends, as we've reflected over, these, these three Christmas, over the Christmas period on, on these three songs on Luke's playlist, songs of praise that speak richly and gloriously of the great salvation that we have in the Lord Jesus. May this one here lead us not just to praise, but maybe to renew our commitment at the beginning of this year and in the strength that God provides to grow in him and his service so that we would know more and more of the true lasting contentment that is only to be found in him. Should we pray? Let's pray.
Father, we thank you so much for showing us some of the, um, some of the responses to the Lord Jesus of the, the godly people in these verses. And I, I pray especially as we've reflected on the, on the contentment of Simeon because he'd seen the salvation of the Lord Jesus. Um, that we too would be looking to the same Lord Jesus for our contentment. Uh, I pray that those who may not have accepted yet your offer of salvation in Jesus, that they would turn and trust in your son and find deep contentment in him. And I pray for each one of us here who does know you, that with your spirit's help, we would make serious time this year for deepening that walk with you so that our contentment in Christ would grow and grow. I pray this all in Jesus' name.